Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power. Uh, and I have to say, I'm feeling a bit miserable at the moment. Um, I've just come back from the LSE where I teach and we're going dark. We're moving everything to online teaching because of uh, coronavirus. And it was just at that part of the term when I teach a, a one-term course on power systems, advocacy and campaigns. And it, we were just getting to that part where it all comes together, when people are really firing on all cylinders. And I'm very sad indeed that from now on we'll be doing everything over uh, over the internet rather than face-to-face. But there we go. These are the things that happen when you have a global pandemic. Um, right. Let's catch up on what, what's been going on. I'm going to be spending a lot more time at home tweeting and blogging and all the rest of it. So these um, roundups will probably only get longer over the next few weeks. So first up on Sunday, it was International Women's Day. So I put a list of things to listen to and read on feminism. And uh, one particular thing I'd pull out was a really good recent panel, which Oxfam organised, on feminist leadership in hard places with speakers from Yemen and South Sudan interacting with um, women from Parliament. And it was a really good conversation. So if you're into podcasts, I urge you to have a look at that one. Um, the next day was links I liked, you know, the, the weekly roundup of stuff. And of course, it was dominated by coronavirus, which is like uh, hogging my timeline at the moment. Um, one thing, a bit of good news uh, and a bit of contrast the last Ebola patient in DRC in the, in, in the Congo was discharged uh, last week. And I just think there is a piece of satire dying to be written at the moment where somebody from Sierra Leone or Liberia or DRC who successfully combated a pandemic offers some advice to the Europeans and Americans, you know, maybe a delegation or a technical assistance mission, um, perhaps with some conditionalities or, you know, or maybe write about... Um, what's going on in Europe and America in the style in which people wrote about Ebola uh, when it was ravaging West Africa. Some a piece of, you know, turning the tables is definitely called for. Um, the other things I'd link to were there have been some fantastic, um, I suppose you could call them public service announcements, public safety announcements on Ebola, but actually some of them are done by comedians and some of them are just really good. So I'm collecting those. If you know of any good ones, do do send them over. The next day, there's a guy called Phil Mason who worked at DFID for something like 35 years or something um, and set up the uh, the anti-corruption unit there. And he's a regular on panels at the LSE where people from the aid and development sector come in and just sort of chat to students about what it's like, how they got started, sort of top tips, that kind of thing. And I was on a panel, I was chairing a panel where he was speaking and he just mentioned in passing, oh, by the way, I've, I've written a paper about my... Um, what I've learned about how to influence in Whitehall. So I got very excited and asked him to send it to me. And um, this is a kind of uh, cut down version of that paper. So this is how a senior civil servant in DFID in the development department in, 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 in the UK government tries to influence other government departments like the Foreign Office or the Home Office or the Treasury. And it's absolutely dripping with wisdom and ideas on things like critical junctures how do you use a crisis to move your agenda forward within Whitehall knowing your adversary which is what he you know the, the phrase he uses for people he's trying to get to do things within Whitehall and a lot of it is actually just good out good old-fashioned advocacy it's like how to influence internally is not that different 
from how to influence externally. A couple of particular things which were struck, I was struck by, um, which are a bit go be a bit beyond what I teach and what I you know what I write about in terms of advocacy. One, don't expect to win by the cogency of your arguments. I think NGOs really need to listen to this. That winning the argument raises antibodies in other Whitehall departments. Um, and you have to understand that Whitehall is a game of interests. This is not just about being right, being logical, having evidence on your side. There are interests involved. And the other one was a really nice tip, which is probing the inconsistencies in other government department positions is more likely to win gains than stressing the logicality of your own. So you don't you know, use a steamroller to try and browbeat people into accepting that you know that your position is right you just ask little socratic questions about well that doesn't quite add up with that and could you explain this to me and i don't quite see well how how these things fit together and you start making people feel a bit uncertain and maybe thinking oh maybe there is something wrong here and they come around to your position in a much more face-saving less sort of aggressive and head-on way very nice if there's one thing this this week i think you should read uh, if you're in, if you're involved in advocacy in any way I think that Phil Mason piece was great total change of um, emotion and sort of feel for the next post which is by Severine Denulin at um, uh, the University of Bath uh, also at Oxford and it's about Pope Francis's recent love letter to the Amazon Um, there was a a synod a papal synod which is the sort of big conclave when uh, that they set up about the Amazon it's been going on for several months. I think Oxfam and its partners in Latin America have been quite involved. And a couple of weeks ago, they published the result, which was called Querida Amazonia, Beloved Amazon. And um, I think the the, the point I, I really took away from that uh, uh, is Severine's... Uh, hold on a minute. I'm just getting something to read because it was so good. Um, Severine makes the point that, you know, this uses love and poetry and language which we would never normally use in a development report. So if you take one of the best, you know, standard development reports, like the Voices of the Poor, legendary kind of World Bank paper on a book on um, what poor people think about their lives, but add love and poetry, then you get something very interesting. Um, example of the poems that were used by the by, by in 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 the um, in Corrida Amazonia from the Colombian poet Juan Carlos Galeano. Those who thought that the river was only a piece of rope, a plaything, were mistaken. The river is a thin vein on the face of the earth. The river is a cord enclosing animals and trees. If pulled too if pulled too tight, the river could burst. It could burst and spatter our faces with water and blood. Now that evokes feelings and thoughts about the Amazon, which no amount of statistics is ever going to do. And I think that's really interesting. The other point Severine made is that um, this is also about engaging in with faith and people's personal beliefs in a way that goes beyond, you know, faith in development has become a bit trendy, a bit sort of, you know, top, uh, sort of popular but it's still incredibly instrumental it's like you know if we use faith groups to get services to people then it's better value for money or you know we get we get our message out to more people if we do it through churches and mosques but this is actually about taking faith seriously and saying um, it reaches deep into people's souls and hearts how do we reflect that in the way we talk about the fate of the world so i think that's a powerful piece from Severine Denelan there and then the last piece this week was from Madhumita uh, Artanari 
um, who is a, a fellow at uh, an Atlantic fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at the LSE, which has been going a few years now, and it's, it, it has a really interesting fellowship system where people can come and sort of reflect and study and process what they've learned about inequality. They're coming in from NGOs and from experiences, and then they get to you know process that and and write some really good blogs. And this one by Madamita Artanari was about sand. It was about sand grabs rather than land grabs. And it's a, and she's from Singapore. And this is very, it starts with Singapore and the politics of taking sands to make land. And if you live in Singapore, it's a bit like being Dutch. You know, you, you see your country growing by reclaiming uh, sea. Uh, and the way they do it in Singapore and in China and many places is by using sand. But the problem is that the amount of sand that's being used is escalating massively. So China, between 2011 and 2013, so a three-year period, used more concrete, poured more concrete, with the main component of which is sand, than the United States did in the entire 20th century. So there's an enormous sand grab going on. And there are real problems because that's, that's creating environmental destruction in the countries that produce it, like Bangladesh and a number of poor countries which are used as um, uh, uh, sources of sand. But also, um, there's no renewable sand. There isn't really a substitute for sand. And so the degradation is continuing. So um, it's a real problem and uh, there are no obvious answers, but it's a really important question to raise. And with that, I will leave you, not least because my wife has just started printing things out on the printer next to me. So the sand has got really bad. I apologise for that. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon.